Well, I said on Sunday in a, in a message on Genesis 2 that the themes of the garden and the tree of life and the river of life, they find their ultimate fulfillment at the end of our Bibles, in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. And so I said almost just in passing that Revelation 21 and 22 gives us several composite sketches of heaven. It calls it a new heaven and new earth, a city, the new Jerusalem, a bride, a temple, and a garden. And then I drove home on Sunday, and I thought, well, I got my outline. I got my passage, I got my outline for the Lord's Supper. That's what we'll do. That's what we'll talk about. It's always good to connect what we're doing on Sundays to what can be some random messages with these Lord's Suppers. We don't have a series usually that we're going through, and that's fine. But it can serve us as an overflow to other things we're doing or a a preface to something that's coming up. And and hopefully that's the case this evening. So turn with me to Revelation 21 in your Bibles. And I hope this message does a few different things. Not only connects to what we were talking about on Sunday, giving us more time to think on what I said somewhat in passing. I hope it also connects to future messages in Genesis especially next Sunday as we talk about that first marriage in Genesis 2. But I hope it's also a word of encouragement to us as a church as we say uh, goodbye or goodbye for now and we send off uh, the Geezies this week. Uh, The Kellys have now sent three daughters to Boyce College in Louisville, Kentucky over the last five years Uh, Boyce College, if you don't know, is the undergraduate institution of Southern Seminary, which is, I think, still the largest seminary in the world. Uh, In fact, several of our current staff members, um, former staff members, uh, and many of our, several of our current members as well, non-staff members at this church, they've graduated from Southern Seminary. Uh, It's a historic institution, started in the 1850s. And many of us who have some connection to this school know of its great tradition, a hymn sung at every graduation since its founding. One of the last lines of the hymn is powerfully evocative. And it's especially fitting for a seminary who at least once a year, sometimes twice a year, graduates and sends off those graduates into the world for Christ's. And that last line is, we meet to part, but part to meet when earthly labors are complete. So we meet to part, that happens, right? But then we part one day to meet when our earthly labors are complete. Well, the book of Revelation speaks to those matters very clearly. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John while he was exiled for his faith, put on an island of Patmos, just there to die, away from civilization, you could say. And he was given this revelation from God to sustain him, but also for it to get off the island, which it did, 
to others. It was written for, not just John, it was written for persecuted Christians in Asia Minor under likely the reign of Nero. Christians who were in many cases just hanging on by a thread and looking for hope. And and the book of Revelation gives at least seven snapshots of God's victory. His cosmic, global, historic, eternal victory. And these seven snapshots of God's victory, they each grow in certainty and completion and finality and victory. Almost like a spiral staircase just ascending upward. And tonight we'll look from the top level. Tonight we'll look at that last section and oh how we need it. Every Christian need it, needs it. Every age needs it. Christians in suffering times especially need it. And in the last year or two, it's been hard, isn't it? Many of us have uh, dealt with death. All of us, in one way or another, have dealt with disease. There's been divisions in the church. We've often felt defeated and deserted or disillusioned. And I'll stop with the, with the Ds that are just coming. But we, we've had hurt and there's un, there are unknowns, uncertainties about what happened, about what's going to come. And then there's just the everyday difficulties about, you know, kids having meltdowns and changing jobs and moving cities and uh, things like that. We, we need to keep our eyes on the big picture, the big picture of God's plan. We need to keep our eyes on the horizon of what's to come in his perfect plan. We need to remind ourselves again and again what's true and what's certain and what's coming and what we can bank on, what we do know for sure, what we should be longing for and trusting in, and what is ultimate. So I'm going to start by reading the first seven verses of Revelation 21. We'll come back to more verses In just a bit, but let me start with the first seven verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage 
and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Well, everything that follows is all right there at the beginning. What gets unpacked over the next chapter and a half is there right at the beginning, almost in bullet point form. All the composite snapshots are there. A new heaven and a new earth, verse 1. A new Jerusalem, the holy city, verse 2. There's mention of bride adorned for her husband, also verse 2. The dwelling place of God with man, that's referring to the temple, the final temple, the ultimate temple. And verse 4 hints at a whole new creation that's now without any curse. Revelation 21 and 22 give us the consummation of all things and give us the consummation of all these grand themes in the Bible that came before. I hope that word consummation isn't intimidating or off-putting to you. I know it's big. Let me explain what it means and why I'm using it because I'm going to use it all through my outline this evening. And I actually thought of alternatives. Jason and I got out the old thesaurus today and we're looking. And final is an option, but that didn't cut it. Ultimate sounded like a surfer or skateboard doing something. Ultimate, I don't know. I'm from the 80s. I'm sure skateboarders and surfers don't say it these days. Perfect, complete, fulfilled, culminating. Well, none of these cut it. Well, the word consummation or the word consummate is all these things all together. Heaven is the consummation of God's plan. Heaven is the consummate, number one, creation. It's the consummate creation. That's what's, met, uh, that's what's meant by the first descriptive phrase, a new heaven and a new earth. Now, I should clarify, if you don't know this little theological tidbit, it's important. When someone dies as a Christian, their bodies go in the ground, but their souls go to be with the Lord. Just souls, not bodies, not yet. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Souls go to be with the Lord when they die. We call that the intermediary, mediary state, the middle state. But when Jesus returns at the end of time, and you might think he has multiple returns, or you might think there's a thousand years in between one return and another return, just that aside. When Jesus returns, whatever you think the final return is going to be, there will be a resurrection of our bodies, and we will have new bodies, and there we will dwell in a new heaven and a new earth, a whole new creation. And we call that the eternal state. That's the consummation. That's what I mean by this word consummate, and that's what's meant in the Bible by this phrase, new heaven and new earth. Not two realms, over here's a new heaven, over here's a new earth. It's one place. It's heaven and earth becoming one. It's the final fulfillment of that prayer request the Lord taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want more of that now. We'll get it fully when Jesus comes and when there is a new heaven and a new earth. It means then that we're not going to heaven per se. Heaven's as much coming down as we're going to heaven. Neither does it mean that heaven is this floaty, cloudy, ethereal, non-physical existence. No, it's a whole new thing, a new creation, new heaven and a new earth. Now let's piece this together from the whole Bible and see how we land there as the last chapter. In the first chapter, literally, Genesis 1 and 2, this world, this creation is good. Even very good. Of course, we know as believers, this world is an ultimate. It's a reflection of our God. It reflects His goodness. It points us to Him. It's good. It's not ultimate. And we would say on this side of the fall, it's also broken. It's a world that's under a curse. We'll get to that in our study of the book of Genesis. We could fast forward a long ways into Isaiah 64 and 65. There the prophet, 600 years before the coming of Jesus, was talking about a new heaven and a new earth that God would one day bring about. The transformation of all things. I can't show it to you tonight, but I can try to argue if I had the time that that's all hitched, all hitched to Jesus, the Messiah. It's coming with him, even if it comes in stages. And it does come in stages. We can say in this era we live in, now that Christ has come, he has already begun a new creation. And if you're saved, then you're a reflection of it. I think this is what Paul was getting at in that well-known verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, old things pass away, all things become new or are becoming new. It's ongoing. So rather than think of 2 Corinthians 5.17 as, as, simply, as simply when we become Christians, we get new hearts and want to do good things, think of it instead as we're now in a new identity, in a new world. We just have the seedlings of it now, just the foreshadow of it now, but one day we'll have it in its fullness. And because Christ has come, and because the end is sure, then the cursed creation we live in right now has hope. Listen to Romans 8, where Paul goes on about this for some length. He says, the creation was subjected to futility. This is at the fall. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, but we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. A whole new creation is coming. 
Christians are groaning for it. The creation itself is groaning as it bears its weight under the curse that God has put it in. But it is a curse with hope. It is groaning with hope. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And back to Revelation, look at the language. Verse 3, he is making all things new. Verse 6, it is done. It's the close of a chapter and the opening of a new one. It is salvation and satisfaction consummated, we could say. Look at verse 6. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. What is it to be thirsty? Well, if it's dangerous enough, it's deadly. It's potentially deadly to be thirsty, to lack water. Water then is life-giving, life-saving. But... It can also, this thirsty feeling, can also be something short of death, even if it feels like it. You go on a a long hike and your camelback thing goes dry and you run out of water. You get home and you're thirsty and you get the water from the tap or something else and you, you, you drink and you're satisfied. It feels good. Oh, there's a quench. And this is what a new heaven and new earth will be. It'll be the final salvation, the last drink we need in a sense. It'll be our satisfaction to the full. Creational elements even get reoriented. Look down at verse 23 of Revelation 21, where we'll read some more of the passage. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Can you imagine that kind of creation? No sun or moon needed? Why? For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. No night. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, and nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. A whole new creation filled with things that are no more. That's one way to study these verses at the end of Revelation is just to go looking for all the things that are no more. No more curse, no more pain, no more death, no more sadness, no more sea back in verse 1. You say, wait, wait, I like the sea. I do too. But this is an analogy. The sea in ancient Hebrew literature represent chaos and threat and even evil. No more sea means no more trouble. No more waves of life that would overtake you. No more sea. No more threat. The gates don't close at night. Think of a city in The ancient Near East world, it would close its gates at night, and if you didn't have an appointment or didn't know someone, you weren't getting in until morning because bandits could come in. Troublemakers might break in. But in the new heaven and new earth, it's like Los Alamos. You don't even have to lock your doors. Do you have any friends that live in Los Alamos? My friends there leave their keys on their floor mat. Huh, how about that? That wouldn't work here in Albuquerque, would it? 
They got a little taste of the new heaven and the new earth up there as they make those bombs. I said little taste, little taste. We can't imagine a place like that. No threat, no trouble, no worry. Nothing unclean. None of your uncleanness. No more sin. Secondly, heaven is the consummate marriage. It's the consummate marriage. Look at verse 2. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice, the new heaven and new earth is also a city, is also a bride. It's mixing metaphors. And what a beautiful metaphor that bride and husband theme is in the Bible. We'll talk more about it on Sunday as we think about the very first marriage in the Bible in Genesis 2. That's where it starts. It's certainly not where it ends. It's certainly not all that it entails. God says over and over, I, I'll be a husband to you. I was like a husband to you. God's people, for a time, it's, it's as if they played the whore. That's literally the language. It's harsh, I know, but, but they went whoring after other gods instead of being faithful to their husband, Yahweh God. But Jesus comes, and, and he, he, he makes for himself a church, and that's the true bride, a bride that isn't perfect, no, but, but doesn't utterly forsake either. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Look at verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Earlier in the New Testament, it can sometimes speak of us already being married to our husband, Jesus. And then other times it talks about it like a betrothal, that we're not yet married, we're engaged. Paul can say, I betrothed you to one husband, Jesus Christ. So we're awaiting in one sense. In one sense, we're already married. In another sense, we're anticipating the wedding day. And that's what is described here in Revelation. The wedding has finally come. You know, when we speak of new heaven and a new earth and a city to come being like a bride, it reminds us that the bride is a people. Heaven will be a place, yes, a time to come, yes, but it is, get this, a people. The new heavens, the new earth is the city, is the bride. Heaven is people, which means heaven will be a reunion. I think there are some corners or some history of evangelicalism that perhaps made too much of who you meet on the other side of Jordan's stormy banks, but let's not overreact to that and think it won't be a reunion. It will be. We, we say our goodbyes now knowing they are so longs. We meet to part. We part 
to meet. Heaven will be a consummate marriage with Jesus as the perfect bridegroom. If heaven is the consummate marriage, then it means our purity is locked up. The bride has been prepared and adorned for her husband, verse 2 says. The marriage day has come, it's consummated, and we are united to our one forever and ever. But more on that theme on Sunday. Come back for that. Thirdly, heaven is the consummate temple. It's the consummate temple. And let me start with the big picture of the whole Bible regarding this theme of temple, and then we'll get to it in Revelation. And this overlaps significantly with what we said on Sunday. We began with garden as the temple, right? The, the, the garden is a kind of temple. We learn that not from the first read of Genesis, but by reading the Bible through and through and finding that the tabernacle, the early version of the temple, had all these garden-like images to it. It was pointing back to the beginning. It was portraying itself, and then hence the garden, as a kind of cosmic temple or God's holy dwelling place. You have the tabernacle, which for a while was a a temporary and mobile version of God's dwelling place. And then you have under Solomon this glorious temple built with gold, massive. Remember after Solomon dedicated it, fire came down from heaven and went into it as a symbol of God's holy presence, an intimate presence dwelling in the midst of his people in that special city, Jerusalem. But then you think of how horrible the destruction of the temple was and the exile of God's people into Babylon. If, if Jerusalem was the holy city and the temple was the holy dwelling place of God, then what does it mean when foreigners come in and break down the walls and smash the temple and desecrate the sacrifices and haul off all the inhabitants to their land as slaves, to a foreign land with their idols? It seems unthinkable, except it was all part of God's plan. It was a, a move of discipline on God's part to get his people's attention. And it was temporary. Eventually, there was the, the return. God's people returned. We studied that in the book of Nehemiah not long ago. The return from exile to the land to rebuild the walls, to eventually rebuild the temple. But do you remember this? that when they rebuilt that second temple, those who remembered the first temple wept when they saw the second temple. Why? Not, of, not out of nostalgia and not out of thankfulness, but they knew that it was inadequate. The prophets during their exile had been announcing a, a temple to come that will blow your mind, unthinkable, even global. Remember Ezekiel, rivers running in four directions, blessing the nations. They're looking for that kind of temple. They rebuild this other temple in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. The old ladies weep when they see it because it doesn't have the glory of the first temple, let alone greater glory that the prophets talked about would be coming. And then a lot of time goes by. 
And then this guy, Jesus, shows up, and he starts talking about his body as the true temple. He says things like, you see that temple? Destroy the temple in three days, and I will rebuild it. What's that mean? Well, John tells us in John 2, he was referring to his body, the temple, and referring to his death and resurrection to come. It was also John who told us in chapter 1 of his gospel that Jesus tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. Literally, it's the word for tabernacled among us. He's wanting to show that this is now the fulfillment of those old things like tabernacle and temple. And then Jesus starts telling his disciples about the Holy Spirit indwelling them, about God taking up residence in them. The Apostle Paul applies that in various ways. So does Peter. Christians are the temple of God. When they assemble together, they're like living stones of that old temple that make up a house for God's presence and worship. But there's more to come. More is needed. As sweet as the best Sunday is, and as sweet as that day with the most intimate warm communion with the Lord personally has ever been for you, more is needed and more is coming. So look at Revelation 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. That's garden language, that's tabernacle language, that's maybe best summed up, that is temple language. You see it in verse 16, look down there. The city lies four square. So now we're talking about this metaphor of the city of heaven. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stedia. Its length and width and height are equal. So I alluded, this, alluded to this on Sunday, and here it is for you to see for yourself. It's a cube. The only other cube in the Bible was the Holy of Holies, found in the tabernacle and later the temple. So here, this cube dimension. It doesn't matter its size so much. If you try to like compute what's a stadia and how many miles is that, you, you really miss the point. There are Bible translations that say it at this point, like 1,500 miles. Well, 1,500 miles will tell you this place is pretty big. If it's cubed, that's like Michigan to Florida, maybe over to New Mexico. I don't know. My geography's not great, but it could tell you it's big, but it doesn't tell you the right number. 1,500 is not the number we should have in mind. 12,000 is the number that we should have in mind. And its dimensions really matter less than its, its uh, shape. It's a cube. It's a cube of God's presence like the Holy of Holies. It's referring to his dwelling place. It, it points back to the temple. In verse 22, you have this Curious phrase, I saw no temple in the city. And you go, wait a minute, why? No temple? I thought we were saying it's like a temple. No, it is like a temple. It doesn't have a temple in it. Its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. We dwell with Him. 
He's the temple. And we will be with him. Without threat, without trouble, in worship, in peace, and in protection forever and ever. That's the consummate temple. That's what we're longing for. That's why homes, your home, is good and feels good and feels right. But it's not ultimate. Right? There's this longing for home. There's this thing of liking home, appreciating home. It's like a, a north compass, north pointing compass. But we need more than whatever address you have where the mail comes. We need a new heaven and a new earth. We need a, a whole new marriage. We need a consummate temple. Fourth, heaven is the consummate city. It's a consummate city. We've been seeing this already. I saw the new city, the new Jerusalem, verse 2. Verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, having the glory of God and its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. Notice its gates, verse 12. It has big gates, great walls. In fact, it has 12 gates. Why 12? Well, it says, verse 12, the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on these 12 gates. Represents something of the, the hallmarks of the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. And as for its foundations, look at verse 14. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So here's where that word stedia and that number 12,000 makes sense. We've got a lot of 12s going on here. What's the significance? Well, for whatever reason, like the number 7, like the number 3, like sometimes 10, God has chosen to put these little significant markers in his history where we go, oh, okay, that's a number of completeness. That's what he's up to. He, he didn't have 12 tribes in the Old Testament because he added up the whole number and he said, you know what, that's divisible by 12. And he didn't come to the New Testament and Jesus looked around and said, you know what, I'd love to have 20 apostles if I can get them. And he tried, and he tried, and he tried, but he gave up after 12. And thank goodness he didn't have nine or something. No, I mean, this is all purposeful. This is all part of God's plan. And here it is in Revelation. Twelve gates representing 12 tribes of the Old Testament. Twelve foundation stones representing the 12 apostles of the New Testament. The whole together representing the whole people of God from Old and New Testament. To consummate city. A city. Which means, again, it's about people. Cities, take them or leave them, they have people in them. Some are better than others. The better ones are supposed to be civilized and orderly and happy and loving. And of course, this one is. It's a beautiful city. And lastly, heaven is the consummate garden. It's the consummate garden. We find this in chapter 22. So look over there. We'll read five more verses. 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. God's people in God's place, under God's rule, consummated. This is the plan of God from beginning to end. It comes back to not the old garden, but a new one and a better one. One unthinkable. One beyond our comprehension. This is the stuff that we lack as aliens and strangers in this world. Though redeemed, we're not yet fully and finally complete. This is the stuff we lack. This is the stuff that we long for. This is the stuff that we're looking for. I remember when U2, back when there was debate about whether U2 was a Christian band or not. Are these guys Christians or not? And then they came out with that song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And some Christians said, aha, I knew it. Not Christians. And all kinds of thoughtful Christians said, I sing that song longing for heaven. I'm still a stranger and pilgrim in this fallen world. This isn't yet my final home. I'm just a passing through. But it's coming. It's coming. And so though we don't get all that it will be, though some of the descriptions seem unrelatable and perhaps for a moment that feels unfun or unexciting, we just take God's word for it that these descriptions are otherworldly. It's why the word like is all over the place in our passage. It's like this, and it's like that, and it's like this, it's like that, because it's not just that. It's better than that. We won't get to heaven and be thinking about how great this gold street is, or, or how big was the clam that produced the pearl that made this gate, because it says each gate's made from one pearl. We won't be marveling at the physicality of it we'll be marveling at the person of it the savior jesus we will worship him we'll be together everything will be right he will make all things new now by the way we could have added another point to this but it would take us back a couple chapters in revelation it's that heaven is a consummate meal consummate meal. Revelation 19 says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So a component under the consummate marriage is there will one day be a consummate meal. And the meal we partake of tonight is but just a foretaste. It's just a snack. It's to hold you over so you don't get low blood sugar. Oh, it's sweet. 
It shows our Savior sacrificed and bloodied for us. It shows us the finished work. His body was torn. His body was hung on a tree. He, he spilled his blood. He breathed his last. And it's all for us and for our salvation. The Lord's Supper shows us that in marvelous ways. And it's not ultimate. It's temporary. It's for this world, not the next. We are to eat of this meal, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. He's coming. There'll be a greater meal, a feast to come in a new heaven and a new earth. Until then, he's given this meal to see us through. And it is, for now, more than enough. Not all that we were cut out for, not all that we will ever have, but it is enough for now as pilgrims and strangers in this weary world. Well, let me pray, and then we'll sing another song, and then I'll come back up and lead us in partaking of the Lord's Supper. Lord, we thank you for your word, for your plan, for our Savior, for this meal. Help us, Lord, to partake it in faith and joy. We pray, Lord, you'd be glorified to keep us and sustain us as we look to you and await the day when you come to get us fully and bring us to yourself. We long for that day, Lord. Amen.